enjoyed our teaching through this book. I think it has really been life-changing. Some of the things we dealt with, we talked about in chapter 1, advancing beyond your pain, that even when you lose a loved one, someone difficult, someone close to you, that you still have to continue. As Naomi lost her husband and daughter-in-laws lost their husbands. Then we dealt in chapter 2 with the return home. How that even when you go back to a place where God is moving and people are excited and happy, it's possible for you to enter into that situation and not be happy. But yet you need to know God is able to direct your steps even when you don't know that your path has been ordained by God. We told you in chapter 3 as we taught our way through that, that the Lord had a conspiracy worked out between two ladies in order to find rest or marriage for Ruth, and it worked out just fine as we looked at obedience down at the threshing floor, just like a, a farmer who's tossing wheat up into the air and the wind is separating the wheat from the chaff. Sometimes the adverse circumstances that we pass through are designed for nothing more than to make us stronger and to remove from our lives certain things that God doesn't want to be there. Could be an attitude, could be a bad habit, but, but all adverse circumstances are not always something that's evil. But this evening, we're going to look at Ruth's redemption. I'm going to read the first four verses. Then Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the kinsman of whom Boaz spoke came by unto him and said, Ho, such a one, turn aside, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. He took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. They sat down. He said unto the kinsman, Naomi, who has come out of the country of Moab, sells a parcel of land, which was our brother Elimelech's. I thought to advertise thee or tell thee, saying, Buy it before the inhabitants and before the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not redeem it, then tell me that I may know. For there is none to redeem it beside you. And I am after you. And he said, I will redeem it. So let's briefly have a, another word of prayer. God, thank you for this lovely book, for this heroine by the name of Ruth all that you did to put this story together. In Jesus' name, amen. Scripture says in chapter 3 that at midnight, Boaz turned and realized there was a, a lady at his feet. The custom of the day, that was the marriage proposal. Because she was there, she asked him to spread his skirt over her which he was inclined to do. He told her he would fulfill all the requirements for marriage. He just simply said, no one should know that you've been here, so stay here till morning. So from morning, from midnight to early morning, she lay at his feet, and I'm telling you, I doubt that this old man slept a wink. He probably was thinking about this girl who could have gone after any young man, but chose him, somewhat older, and she wanted him to be the husband. Well, chapter 4, verse 1 makes it very plain that he went straight up to the gate. That means he didn't stay at the threshing floor a moment longer than he needed to, which teaches us a very important lesson, and that is if you are looking for a blessing and you want God to do something for you, don't loiter. Don't tarry. Get down to business. 
That man got up, got dressed, headed to the gate. And when he got there, the, the person he was waiting for wasn't there, but he still sat down. And that gives us a second point. And that is, even when you get to the point where the blessing can materialize, don't be impatient. Just wait on God. Some people that are impatient, even Moses said to the children of Israel, stand still and see the salvation of God. Now, if you haven't figured it out by now, it's taken me a while to figure it out, but God does not operate with any kind of microwave theology. That is to say, you know, when you stick something in there and you're hungry, you're just pacing back and forth. You can't understand why 35 seconds takes so long. And when it comes to God, you pray and you ask God for something and then you're walking back and forth and you're like, OK, God, do you even understand that I'm waiting? What's the problem here? What's taking so long? God doesn't move fast just because we're pacing or just because we're angry or just because we're complaining. But we are required to be patient. And, you know, as well as I do, since God's not going to move according to any calendar other than his, it's just best to be patient anyhow. This is why when he sat down waiting for the man, I'm sure there were multitudes of people that came passing by. But when he saw the one, that's when he opened his mouth. See, no one knows when the opportunity for your blessing is going to come, but you have to wait for it. But when the blessing comes, then you seize the moment. He opened up his mouth and he spoke to the man and said, please come and sit here. He did not stay at the threshing floor and years later would have regretted it saying, oh, I wish I would have gone to the gate just to see what would have happened. And he didn't go down to the gate and because of shyness refused to open up his mouth and later in life would have said, even though I was there, I wish I would have spoken. There are many people in life like that. They go through life and they reach elderly years or another part, another season of their life that's later than the, the former ones. And then they wish they had done this. They wish they had done that. But they were afraid to march to the gate. This is what Boaz did. He said to the man, sit down and let's talk. You'll notice that he had 10 men that were witnesses. That's in verse 2. You can see it again in verse 9 and 10. You need 10 people to verify what is taking place. And then he begins the discussion and he says to the man, according to the law, if someone is very impoverished and the husband has died, the poor widow, it's Leviticus 25, the person can sell the property. Someone can come and purchase the real estate. And the scripture says that once it is purchased, it remains in the hands of the purchaser until the year of Jubilee. The year of Jubilee is the 50th year. So 49 years, then the 50th year, it goes back to the original owner so that it remains within the precincts of the 12 tribes of Israel. To put it in, in modern terms, if you own farm land right now and you went bankrupt with the farm, somebody came around and bought it out from under you, that would mean 49 years later, unless you came up with the funds on your own, 49 years later in that 50th year, it would then come back into your ownership. This is what is occurring here. Boaz says to this man, Naomi sells a piece of ground. Would you want to purchase it? The man said, I will take it. And then Boaz throws in this extra part. He says, you need to know if you buy the land, you also have the bride that is attached to it so that the name of the decedent, her husband, will not go out of the land. It needs to be raised up with the property. Well, he said, I don't want to mar 
the inheritance or blemish the inheritance that I have, he goes on to say, I cannot redeem it. Now, we don't know why he said that. I don't know if maybe he would have had the mortgage, the property he already possessed against what he wanted to buy. I don't know if maybe he already had children and had so much of this stuff allocated through a will that he didn't want to get more involved and cause all kinds of problems. But I do know he said the inheritance that he presently has, it can be blemished by a decision here. He has the right to buy it, but he doesn't have the will to buy it. Now, you, you can have the right to do things, but that doesn't mean you should. Even Paul said in the New Testament, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are expedient. That is to say, I can do just about whatever I want to do, but that doesn't mean it's going to be beneficial or advantageous to me. Then he gives some examples. He said, if you're in the church and something is taking place between two Christians in the church and there is a loss of money or property, he said, why would you bother to go to sue your brother or sister before an unbelieving judge? He said, why don't you rather suffer yourself to be defrauded? He said, so it's lawful for me to go to an unjust judge and see if this whole thing can be adjudicated. But he said, it's not necessarily beneficial. I know that's a difficult thing. Uh, it's easy to pass up $50 or $100 if someone has not been faithful or kind, truthful to you. It's a lot harder to give up $1,000, $10,000, especially if it's another Christian or saint that's involved, because there are the kinds of people that would take advantage of Christian kindness and charity. It's even harder if it's $100,000 or more. Oh my, how do I permit myself to suffer loss? These are the things that Paul was talking about in 1 Corinthians 13. He said, I have the ability, or 1 Corinthians 6 or 7, he says, I have the ability to go out and sleep with anybody that I want to. But he says, if I do that, I join myself to someone else and I become one with them. And he says, don't you know if you join yourself to a harlot, you become one with the harlot? Then he talks about the kinds of people that won't inherit the, the kingdom of God. The most difficult thing for Christians who try to straddle the fence and keep one foot in the world, one leg in the church, is that they struggle with conviction and condemnation. They never feel good because of the, the divided heart issue. What kind of an inheritance do you have? I don't know if you've heard this before, but I certainly have. If you do something that someone doesn't like, especially if they're not a believer, they'll say something like this. I thought you were a Christian. See, what they're saying is you claim to have a new name. You claim to have a new life. You claim to have a new savior. You claim to enjoy a new inheritance. But what is it that has caused you to act in this particular way. And many sinners know just enough about the Bible to be dangerous and just enough to really try to make you feel bad and enter into condemnation. Well, understandably, if you've received a good name, the Bible says a good name is better than silver or gold. Do not blemish or mar your inheritance. Your name could very well one day be as good as a handshake on a million dollar deal. And there are some places in this world, some people that you can have relationships with that know that your word is your bond and you can shake hands with a banker on a $10,000 deal. 
And you'll be able to shake hands with your neighbor with a verbal agreement or maybe just an embrace or a hug and say, I'm committed to this with you. I'm committed to that with you and hold steadfast. That's why name is so important. You can live it up or you can live it down. Don't mar your inheritance. The scripture is teaching us through this man. He says, I know there's a possibility I can enrich myself and have more through that real estate, but I've got the right, but I don't have the will. Don't have the ability. So he says no. So you have to be careful about all opportunities. Just because the door is open, that doesn't necessarily mean the door is for you, but it very well could be. Something you have to work out between you and the Lord. Well, Boaz said, if you really feel that way, let's seal the deal. Let's let's sign the papers. And the way they signed the papers then wasn't as we do it now. They didn't call for a lawyer. They had a custom in ancient times. And and that was you took a shoe off of your foot and then you handed it to your neighbor. I, I, I recall a service one time where a preacher did that. He was talking about Joshua and, and Moses. He was talking about Moses at the burning bush had to take off his sandals because he was on holy ground. He told the people in the congregation, he said, everybody hold up your shoe. And everybody held up a shoe. And as they held it up, he said, now, okay, whatever you do, he said, don't wave it under the nose of your neighbor. Just hold it up. And then he started talking more about the text of Scripture. Well, here's the thing. The Lord told Abraham in Genesis that he should walk through the land, and as he did, God would give him all the places that his foot touched. And Joshua, the scripture says, he said to the children of Israel when they entered into the promised land, he said, look, all that your feet walk on, that belongs to you and your tribe, and it will never be taken away from your tribe because you have wholly followed the Lord. When the man took the shoe off, he was essentially saying to Boaz, you have the opportunity to walk in my shoes in that inheritance. It's a transference, not only of position, but also of relationship with the property that's being redeemed. Now, we have an idiom in English that's like that. We say this, if I were in your shoes, or you ask the question, what would you do if you were in my shoes? See, that's how we use it in in English, the transference of relationship. Let's suppose you were in my position. What would you do? That's, That's what that's saying. Well, this was the custom. And to think that property was being exchanged and a young lady was being married or engaged, betrothed, on the basis of this kind of exchange, it shows you the differences in the marital customs. Now, all customs are different. And and I think if some people around the world knew the manner in which we got engaged or married in America, they'd be somewhat surprised by it. Some would probably like it. Most other cultures, the men don't get down on a knee and propose but they do in some Western cultures. All cultures around the world don't provide an engagement ring, but it does happen here. In other cultures, you don't typically have a flower girl and ring bearer coming down the aisle before the bridesmaids and things like that, but in our culture, we do. I've been a part of several marriages overseas. All of them have been somewhat different for me. I've always enjoyed them, though. 
but I'll, I'll share with you what I shared with some of the people on the uh, Tuesday night uh, about some of these. One time I had a roommate in Jordan by the name of Bob. He was a Caucasian gentleman. And I, I always tell Bob, Bob was the worst Arabic student, I think, in the history of, your, of the world. I just if, if he could pronounce a word wrong, I believe me, it just came out wrong. He just, in Arabic, the word for hello is marhaba. A little three-syllable word, marhaba. But for him, it became marbaha with a country accent. And I mean, the Arabs would just look at him whenever he would try to talk, and I would just laugh. But he came to me one day, and he said, you know, Daryl, he said, I want to get married. And he said, I want to marry an Arab girl over here. And uh, he said, I'd like you to be my go-between. And they've got like a little Arabic word for that. And he, I said, okay. I said, I'd, I'd love to. To do that. So I went to the family. I said, Bob wants to get married to an Arab girl over here. Could you guys work this out? Well, meanwhile, I had asked Bob, why do you want to marry an Arab girl? He said, well, he said, I don't know what my chances are in America finding a really beautiful, beautiful gal. But he said, you know, over here in a world, world like this, he said, I'm the catch me out, kind of like that, you know. And he said, I want, a, I want a wife that, that, you know how these Arab ladies are. They just take care of a guy. You know, a guy walks into the room in the Middle East, and I mean, guy sits down, and then the lady's taking his sandals off, got a little bowl and washing his feet and bringing him cups of tea and all kinds of food. He comes in. He doesn't have to move at all. He just sits down, and everything is taken care of for him. I mean, it's just a, a, a good life for a guy in the Middle East, even if you're a Christian man. So I understood what he was saying. He was, he was saying, essentially, I want a Jody Fangmire. Well, <laughs> well, the, the day came where we're supposed to, to do this engagement thing. And so here, here's how it works out. We, they had a big living room in this house. It was a four-story house. I was living with all of these different areas. There was one single family, but different siblings. And they had a big, huge living room. It might have been half of this or so, and they had a long table set out. Bob sat here, I sat on his right. In front of Bob, there was a teacup and a saucer with a teapot. And Bob has to sit there with his hand over the teacup. So the Christian ladies file in and they've got veils on. And then one by one, the ladies come before him and then they pour their veil down. And when they pour their veil down, if she is the one he has chosen, he takes his hand off the top of the cup. She lifts up the teapot, pours in the tea, and that signals this is the selection. So I said to Bob, I said, Bob, look, there's a lot of girls in here right now. You make sure everybody goes through at least once before you move your hand. And that's exactly what he did. Finally, he found the one he was happy with, lifted his hand. They poured the tea. We all start clapping and screaming. And Bob, happily married somewhere, probably getting his feet massaged today. Who knows what's going on with Bob? But that was one time. Another time I was involved with a marriage where I flew to Canada. This might have been 10 years ago. And the Iraqi family that I was living with in Jordan, they were, they were, I'd helped them immigrate to Canada, helped them with the paperwork and all of that. And so I was down in the basement and they never called me Daryl. They always called me minister. They said, minister, minister, come upstairs. So I came upstairs and the, the ladies in the family were sitting there with all of these pictures of girls on the table. And they said, they said, minister, they said, one of our cousins is getting married and we cannot figure out which one of these ladies would be perfect for him. And said, we know you and you know God. Could you pick the one that you think 
he ought to be married to. Well, you know, I looked at them pictures and the only thing I could think of, OK, who does he want to wake up to each day? Because I don't know anybody's temperament, anybody's personality. So I said, well, I would choose her. Well, Minister, that's the one he's going to marry. So I got on the plane, came back to Nebraska. They had the wedding and I don't think he still knows that an American chose his bride for him. Yeah. Customs are different. That very same family that I did that for when we were living in Jordan, the oldest son was a professor in Oxford University. And his dad was arranging a marriage for him to for for him to come back and and get involved with. And he had never seen this girl, never met the girl. And I sat there in my house in Jordan in a little village called Mahata. And I said to that Iraqi professor, that gentleman, that Christian, I said, how in the world? Can you fly here to Jordan from England and marry a girl you've never even seen? He looked at me and never even batted an eye. He just said, I trust my father. That's all he said. I trust my father. Folks, I love my father. I don't know if I have that kind of trust. I let dad choose who I'm going to marry. Customs are different. Boaz took the shoe as evidence, the witnesses watched in verification. And then the scripture says he went off and he married this young lady by the name of Ruth. And the scripture says the Lord gave her conception in verse number 13 and gave her a son. She bore a son and the ladies said to Naomi as they began to bless her, said the Lord has not left you without a kinsman. The name will continue. I notice in verse 15 The baby is going to be a restorer of her life. She came home empty. She came home depressed. She came home sad. But this baby is going to add vitality to her. He's going to be a nourisher of her old age. That is to say, he's going to look after her and care for her in her old age. You know, ancient times, they didn't have Social Security. There were no government benefits. Nobody could draw a disability. You had kids to take care of you or you had nephews and nieces that had to look after you. They named the child Obed because Obed is the Hebrew word that means servant. This child is going to be a servant of God and it's going to be a servant in that house. He's going to make you happy, Naomi. What a blessing that is. Now, it's interesting when you look at verse 17, it says that Obed is the father of Jesse, the father of David. So Obed is a grandparent in some way of David. Isn't this an amazing story? To, to just bring about the lineage of King David, who's going to be the man after God's own heart. The twists and turns, the difficulties, the tragedies, the joys, the sorrows. All of this is built into this story. What about your grandparents? I mean, you're a product of other people's lifestyles. Some people had happy times. Some people had sad times. But it, it was all of the, the different periods of their life that produced you. And you do need to know the stories and testimonies of your families. I know them of mine. You should know them of yours. My uh, grandfather, when I was about 10 or 11, he drove up. Grandparents came up from Alabama to, to visit us. And my grandpa, while he was there, the car, his car, was stolen out of our backyard. Well, they found it later on in the day. And... Then several days later, he's on the road driving back down to Alabama. Shortly after he arrived in Alabama, died in a car crash. Died in a car crash. Tragedy. And that, I mean, that just pains 
my mom, and my auntie to this day to think that here he'd come to visit us and his last visit, last trip has to do with us and something terrible like that happened. But, you know, I, I think about that and it is a tragedy, it was a tragedy, but you know what, it, it, had it not been for him, I wouldn't be here because he's my mom's dad. All the tragedies that he went through, the things that were built into his life as a sharecropper in the South, all of that came through. My mom came into me. I've thought about Tiff's grandpa. We've driven down through the plantation areas where her family came from. She had a grandpa that was a preacher, and he was a different kind of preacher. He preached during that, that era where you had to deal with the KKK and all them folks in Mississippi. But his, uh, her grandfather was the kind of a man that all of the kids knew if you came after midnight or late at night and you opened the gate to that house to walk towards the house you had to start shouting your name immediately or he started shooting the shotgun in your direction because in those times folks you couldn't just have anybody coming on your property and one of her aunts almost got killed but I've heard a whole lot of stories from her family just sitting there listening to them talk about growing up, working in cotton fields and living in difficult times in Mississippi, whether it was having to go in the back of a restaurant or drinking from a different fountain. All of that's a part of her story. My stepfather, the man that raised me, who I call my dad, he, his dad died in 1951. He was over 100 years of age. That means... The first 16 years of his life, he was a slave owned by somebody else. He never learned to read. It was against the law for him to learn to read and write. He never did. Even when he became an adult, his first wife had died. He married again in old age. Here comes my stepdad born. So my dad would tell me stories of how when he was a little boy, he'd read the Bible to his dad because his dad couldn't read. And then after he heard the Bible story, then his dad would walk six miles, 16 blocks, wherever he had to go to preach the gospel to people and tell them about the Lord. My dad would read the story. So when I tell kids in school sometime in Black History Month about stuff like that, I usually tell them, you know, most people you meet that are African-American, they can tell you about great-great-grandparents, great-great-great-grandparents that were slaves or something like that. But I said, between me and slavery, there's one generation. One generation, my dad. Think about that. But all that he went through had everything to do with the man that raised me to be what I am. And when you think of your parents and grandparents and great-grandparents, whether they came out here on a covered wagon, lived in dugouts, whether somebody came out here on the run because they were a cattle rustler or they came out here on their way wet to the West Coast to to mine for gold and got stuck in Nebraska, the babies that are buried out here in so much of this farmland soil, all of that has made you what you are. It's a lot of twists and turns to produce somebody like David, who is later going to be the king. This transaction of redemption took place outside the gate and the blessings came. Scripture says in Hebrews, Jesus Christ stepped outside of the city bearing the cross he suffered outside the gate where did the transaction of redemption take place at the gate there were witnesses there when Jesus died just like there were witnesses here when the transaction of redemption took place for Ruth 
interested parties were there. Some gambled for Jesus' clothing. His mother was there weeping and crying. The disciples were there watching to see what would happen. And that's why on the day of Pentecost, Peter could stand up and say, we are witnesses. And so also is the Holy Ghost of how you crucified Christ, but God raised him from the dead. Now they're dead. The disciples are dead. But the same Holy Spirit that lived in them that was there at Calvary, as Jesus offered himself to God through the Holy Spirit, that same Holy Ghost lives inside of you. And it's him that verifies to us what we read in the scripture. And he's the one that makes us able, competent witnesses of redemption. Because when you read the Bible, you look and you say, oh, my Lord, are you are you serious when you says that that whale or that big fish swallowed Jonah? Then the Spirit of God in your heart says, that's exactly, well, that's exactly what I meant. That book is not lying to you. When it says Jesus got up on the third day, he got up on the third day because I was there when it happened. That's what makes you a witness. A witness. And that man Boaz came to that gate looking for property and looking for a bride. But he had no idea on this earth that his name would yet be as popular as it is now and that his inheritance would be greater than anything he could ever conceive. And the scripture says God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all you could ask or think. Your inheritance, your redemption is so great that when you think of all that God has done for you, you can't help but scratch your head and say, oh my Lord, why did you choose me? Somebody like me, a little kid out here in Nebraska, Lord, why did you bring the gospel to our home when so many kids out here aren't raised in church? Lord, I was just a farm boy. Lord, I was just a kid working on tractors. I was a mechanic, a school teacher's kid, a music teacher's kid, bus driver's kid, somebody that ran the elevator, somebody that swept the floor at the courthouse, somebody that, that didn't even have a good job. Lord, why did you bring the gospel to me? It's to let you know that the Lord's providing you with an opportunity to walk through the inheritance that he has claimed. He transferred the shoes to you. They give you the legal right to enjoy the blessings that come from serving him. At the gate with Boaz and Ruth, it was the transfer of a shoe. At Calvary, it was the shedding of blood. And that's why you're blessed today. Folks, God's done so much for you. Oh, my, I hope you enjoy redemption. I hope you're glad you're saved. And I hope you don't do anything to mar your inheritance. I hope you don't ever sell your inheritance. But I pray you hold on to what you have because there are many voices in this world that'll say to you I can offer you something better if you just bow down and worship me all the kingdoms of the world that's what Satan offered to Jesus Jesus said no no so this is what scripture says and I'm not serving you amen come on let's stand isn't it good to know God oh my think about it folks People all over this world haven't heard the name of Jesus as many times as we've mentioned it today. But I'm glad that on a Sunday evening, I get to spend my evening with folks like you that know God. Oh, I know we could put together a wrestling match, football game, basketball, go have a good time and all of that's fun too. But, I mean, what's the equivalent of this? I mean, a Buckeye party? I mean, what's, what's the equivalent of this? I mean, mercy, to be able to serve God, you know. But God's good, folks. Let me have a word of prayer with you. Father, we love you. We thank you. We honor you. We praise you.
God, thank you for each soul that's here this evening. You know the desires of their heart, the things they're praying for, the new seasons of their lives that they're entering into. We thank you for the roofs that are over their head, the vehicles that they drive, the employment you've given to them. Thank you for their faithfulness and diligence in loving you and giving back to you what you have provided to them by way of their children, by way of their sacrificial living. We pray, God, that you take sickness out of our midst, put a hedge of protection about us, cover us by the precious blood of the Lord. Give us the safety and security of your wings under which we have safety and we can trust, Lord. So God, be with us throughout this week. These things we pray for in Jesus' name and everyone said, Amen, Amen, Amen.